First and Second Kings are really one book. Uh, they were broken up sort of for administrative ease in scrolls and other things, but it's, it's a single author and a single historical account from a theological perspective of, of Israel. So although we're about to finish one book and start Second Kings, it's really just a continuation of, of the same themes. Um, so with that, let's, let's pray as, uh, as we get ready to study God's Word. Heavenly Father, it is uh, with great joy that we come this morning recognizing uh, what a great privilege it is to come and gather with others who belong to you, others who love you and whom you have redeemed in order to, to worship you and give you the praise that you deserve, in order to reorient our thought processes, our priorities, and our emotions in a way that would be pleasing and honoring to you. We know and, and admit, confess that, that those things often become out of, out of whack and out of line as we progress through the, the sometimes difficulties and chaos of the week, but, but we're here to realign those in the way that you intend them to be, which is to be focused upon you and upon serving others as a means of loving you. Father, we pray this morning you would allow us to have focus, to be able to Set aside those things that are worrying us and distracting us and, and focus on the thing that is best for us this morning, which is to hear what you have to say. And I pray that we would come with an, an open heart and an open mind, willing to subject our wants and desires to your will, because that is what's best for our good and your glory. I pray that the message heard this morning would be greater than the message spoken, that your spirit would do its work to invite wisdom and understanding. We thank you that we can come to you and ask these things, knowing that we can receive them, because that is your will, that much you have told us. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you haven't, open to 1 Kings 22. Uh, while you're, you're getting there, uh, I, most people in here uh, have kids, and if you don't, you've been a kid. So this applies to everyone, but one of the most frustrating things that my kids say to me, and I have eight kids, so this gets said a lot, is you just don't understand, right? So we, we tell them something, we're providing instruction, right? Trying to be those godly parents and out of the mouth of my 11-year-old, you just don't understand. Well, that's not true, right? You just don't understand me, right? And, and that's really what it comes down to is whenever a kid says that, they don't understand the wisdom and the experience that their parents have. They don't understand the perspective that we bring to parenting. And so they think that we just don't get it because we don't agree with them. But that's not true at all, is it? That attitude, their, their lack of understanding of who we are as parents, then results in certain behaviors on their part, which then results in certain behaviors on our part as a parent, right? Needing to discipline them for their misunderstanding. And that's really what we're going to see this morning in our passage is it's all about man's wants versus God's will. And what we'll see is some of the men in the account this morning don't understand who God is and what his will is. And therefore, their actions are foolish and require appropriate judgment by a holy God. That's what this morning is all about. We, we continue studying the account of Ahab. We've been studying Ahab for several weeks now. The the author of Kings devotes almost six chapters to this wicked king of Israel. That's way more than, than any other king, uh, other than Solomon at the beginning. Why so many? Well, because there's so much to learn from 
looking at the wrong path and understanding what then the right path ought to be. So four weeks ago, Vikram took us through chapter 20, and we saw that Ahab's small view of God resulted in some foolish actions and a pronouncement of judgment by an unnamed prophet. Then in chapter 21, Edwin led us through the fact that Ahab's covetous spirit led to some foolish actions and a pronouncement of judgment by Elijah. And this week, in chapter 22, we come to a similar account where Ahab's lack of willingness to subject his desires to God's will results in his final foolish action and the carrying out of God's judgment. We'll see this developed in, in three key insights concerning the will of God. The passage really unfolds in three parts. The first is we see what the attitudes that the four major characters in the account have towards the will of God. So we'll see each of their attitudes spelled out by the author. Then next we'll see the will of God in this situation revealed. God's going to say, this is exactly what my plan is. And then we'll see the outcomes or the results for all of these men based upon their attitudes to that revealed will of God. That's what we're going to be looking at. The theme for this morning is that God has expressed His will through His Word, both in the Old Testament and the New. In the Old, it came often through prophets. In the New, we have the written Word. And we can either disregard it because we want our own way, or we can subject our own way to His will, understanding that that, that puts us in a good place, not a bad place, because He is a good King and a powerful King. And, and what happens to us is a result of, of how we deal with that. So first, the, the attitudes towards the will of God. If you would, we'll, we'll begin reading the first eight verses of 22. Three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses, which translated means yes. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He's Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. All right, so here's the stage, and the first thing we're going to see about the, will of, the attitude of the will of God in this passage is a contrast of two kings. So we have Ahab, the evil king of Israel, whom we're familiar with. We sort of know his character. And then we're going to see Jehoshaphat's view. But we, we get Ahab's first. And what we see is, again, not surprising. It's a selfish disregard for the will of God. Ahab wants Ramoth-Gilead. Now, Ramoth-Gilead was a town on the east side of the Israelite kingdom. It was kind of on the border between Israel and Aram. And, of course, Israel has had two wars with Aram and its king Ben-Hadad. We, we studied those in the last couple chapters. But even before that, back in 1 Kings chapter 15, the then king of Aram, the one preceding Ben-Hadad, took several cities from Israel. One of those was Ramoth-Gilead. And then in chapter 20, when the king of Israel, when Ahab spares Ben-Hadad's life, 
as a gift or as a thank you, Ben-Hadad says, hey, we'll give back all those cities we took from you guys. But he hasn't done it. And Ahab's getting a little annoyed. And he wants Ramoth-Gilead because since it's on the east side of his kingdom, there was a major trade route that ran from east to west right through Ramoth-Gilead. And whoever owned the town could collect revenue taxes off all the caravans and the trading cargo going back and forth. As one author said, it, it's a shame to have a turnpike running through a place if you're not sitting in the toll booth. That's what was going on. Ahab wanted to be in the toll booth. He wanted the city back because of the revenue it brought to his kingdom. And so he said to his counselors, hey guys, this belongs to us. He promised to give it back. He hasn't done it. And we've done nothing. But Jehoshaphat's coming. I'm not going to go to battle for it on my own. Ahab was too cowardly for that. But if Jehoshaphat's coming with his army and pledges his assistance, then I'll go. I'm willing to, to take his army and go take it back, but not on my own. Cowardly action on Ahab's part, but again, not surprising for what we know of the man. When any king of God's people was to go to war, the correct thing for him to do was to seek God's will before they entered into the war. Even at this point in their history, that was an established way of doing business. We see this in 1 Samuel 23.1. They told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? That was the correct thing for a king to do, to seek God's will before he took his people and put their lives on the line. Makes sense. Ahab doesn't do that. Why? Because he doesn't care. Ahab, like Vikram mentioned, is a baby. He wants what he wants, and if he doesn't get it, he's going to throw a temper tantrum. So he takes advantage of Jehoshaphat's visit and said, I'm not going to, I don't really care what the Lord has to say. I'm going to go get it, and I'm going to use Jehoshaphat to do it. Not surprising. So then we see Jehoshaphat come down, and Jehoshaphat's attitude toward the will of God is a little different. Right, so Ahab asks him, will you go with me to get this city back? Jehoshaphat swears a solemn vow. That's what those formal phrases mean. And he says, yeah, I'll go with you, but we got to ask God whether we should do this or not. Right? He understands what a king should do before he goes to battle. Now, before we get too far into Jehoshaphat, since we haven't been introduced to him yet, we need to know what kind of a guy we're dealing with here. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 3 through 5 says this about Jehoshaphat. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. So Jehoshaphat is one of the few good kings in Judah. Right? There's none in Israel. They're all wicked. Most are wicked in Judah, but there's a few good ones. Right? Jehoshaphat's father, Asa, was a good one, and Jehoshaphat is as well. We're told he followed after David in his earlier days when he was sold out to God. And we'll see some of the things that Jehoshaphat does to, to sort of refocus Judah on following God uh, as we walk through next week. But he's a wise king. He's a God-fearing king. And so when he says, okay, Ahab, I'll go with you, he says, but the right thing to do is to seek God's will first. Because he understood, right, we just read that he had riches and honor. Even some of his enemies paid him tribute. We'll find out that the Philistines even paid him tribute. He's the most powerful and prepared king to go to battle that, that's in this region. But he understands one thing. 
My strength and numbers don't determine the outcome. Right? We've read this verse before, Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Jehoshaphat gets that. So he says, hey, we need to, we need to ask God's opinion on this. So Ahab says, okay, fine. You, you want to ask God's opinion? I get it. And he calls 400 prophets whom he happens to have on retainer for just such occasion. Right? These 400 guys show up, and, and you can kind of see what's going on here, right? When he asked the question, it seems like a fair question. Should I go up to Ramoth Gilead or should I refrain? But here's really what he's saying. Hey, guys, should I go up to Ramoth Gilead or should I stay here? And to a man, every one of them answers, oh, yeah, yeah, you should go. Now, even if they weren't in his sway, right, you can't get 400 people to agree on anything unless it's in all of their best interests. These guys were not true prophets. They, they were not prophets of Baal or Asherah, right? Ahab's smart enough to know Jehoshaphat's not going to listen to anything they have to say. He brings the guys that are supposedly prophets of God, but they are in the mixed and, and wicked religion that Jeroboam started, right, way back when the kingdom split, where he set up false calves to, to worship. He set up a false temple. So they have sort of the trappings and, and the, the appearance of worshiping Yahweh, but it, it's not that. But he brings them in, and they're like, oh, yeah, go up, and, and it's going to be fine. And what does Jehoshaphat say in verse 7? He says, yeah, um, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? He's like, hey, these 400 guys are not really what I had in mind, Ahab. I, I get what you're doing, but, but they're not it. And there's an interesting difference in the words here. When the 400 prophets come and they say, go up, in verse 6, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king, the word Lord there is Adonai. It's a general term for someone in a position of authority, right? You and I would consider that God with a little g, right? Fake God. They're saying, hey, don't worry, Ahab, whatever God's kind of in control of this situation here, he's going to give you victory. When Jehoshaphat says, no, I need a prophet of the Lord, that's Yahweh. He uses God's covenant name, the personal name that he gave to his people. So it's the same word in our translation, but the prophets say, hey, some God is going to give you success. And Jehoshaphat says, I don't care about that. I only want to know what Yahweh has to say. We need to find a prophet of Yahweh. Interesting. We see a little more of Ahab's attitude as well when he says, okay, fine. There, there's one guy I can get. Well, first of all, that's a lie. Who was the last prophet that Ahab had an interaction with in chapter 21? Elijah. But he doesn't mention Elijah here. But he's around. Why doesn't he mention Elijah and, and talk about going to get him? Because the last time he and Elijah spoke, Elijah said, you're going to die. So Elijah's a non-starter. It's like, I'm not even thinking about that guy. But there's one guy I can call, but I hate him because he never says anything good about me. Right? Inherent in that, in that description is the fact that Ahab believes a prophet gets to choose what to say. Right? That a prophet is not bound by the will of God, that he can choose what to say based on the circumstances. Right? That's Ahab's view. Jehoshaphat, though, has a different view even over the prophets because what does he say in verse... Eight, Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Right? He defends Micaiah and says, look, if he's really a prophet of Yahweh, he's not speaking out of bias. He doesn't get to choose, so don't talk about a prophet of Yahweh that way. Jehoshaphat's standing up even just for the, the reputation of a prophet whom he hasn't met yet. 
Now, Micaiah and Ahab apparently have history, right? because when Ahab says, yeah, there's this one guy, but I hate him, because he always says negative things about me, clearly they've had interactions before. And they were never good for Ahab. But in his head, there's never even the thought that, well, maybe that's because I'm just not a very good king. <laughs> no, it's always, well, he's just biased and saying nasty things because he's just a mean guy. Right? You can see these two very stark differences here. So there's the, the contrast of the kings. Well, the next thing we'll see is the contrast of, of two prophets. Verse 9 will continue. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, All right, bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. All the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So here we have this interesting sort of royal court and war council scene. So Ahab says, all right, he sends a messenger, go get Micaiah. In the meantime, they're out in the public gathering space of the city, right? The, the gates or the threshing floor of the city was the area that Old Testament cities would use for public gatherings. Sort of a parade ground, you can think of it that way. And Ahab and Jehoshaphat are both there on their thrones, decked out in regal splendor. The 400 prophets are gathered around, prophesying whatever they feel is most in their own best interest. And there's undoubtedly generals that are gathered there for this war council. Right? It's a big deal. That's kind of the scene that we have going on. And amidst this scene, we meet Zedekiah. And so he's one of these 400 prophets that's just going to say whatever it takes to be taken care of by the king. Right? He's one of the yes-men. It's in his best interest to give the king the answer he wants because that provides him with power, prestige, prosperity. But Zedekiah isn't convinced being just one of the prophets. He wants to out-profit the false prophets. He's going to go even further. And he's smart about it. right? When, when the prophets originally say, yeah, go up, Adonai will give it into your hand, you're, you're good, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat goes, nope, that doesn't work for me. Part of the reason is, Old Testament prophets had a traditional way of dispensing God's word. They used the phrase, thus saith the Lord, to indicate that it was not their own word. They often had a physical sign to help the people understand what God's will was in the situation. And they would often reference Old Testament scripture, at the time mostly the writings of Moses. Although by this time, they also have David and Solomon's writings. That was the way that prophets of God gave God's will. And so Zedekiah sees Jehoshaphat's hesitance and goes, okay, that's what you're looking for? I got this. So look what he does. Thus says the Lord, right? He, he knows the old formula. He makes two horns of iron. So now he has a physical sign, right? That's what the Old Testament prophets used to do. And he said, with these horns, you will gore the Arameans. Well, it's not obvious here, but that's actually a reference to Deuteronomy 33, 17. One of... Moses' writings, when he was blessing all the tribes, he got to the tribe of Joseph, so the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and he said, as the firstborn of his ox, majesty belongs to Joseph, his horns are the horns of the wild ox, and with them he will gore the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. So Zedekiah goes, okay, I know how to do this, if that's what you want, Jehoshaphat. I can make it look like and sound like what you're looking for and still make it my words. Matthew Henry said, there's nothing so dangerous 
as almost truth in the mouth of a false prophet. Half-truths. So this is Zedekiah. Again, his view of the will of God is not that God has a will or needs to be involved or, or that God's will is binding, but I can say whatever I need to to further my own personal point of view. I can make the form of religion with none of the substance. Then we meet Micaiah. Verse 13. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. Now you can see what's going on here, but there's one thing we have to understand that's not explicitly written in the text, but we'll, as it flows out, we'll kind of see this to be true. The reason that Ahab calls Micaiah, and the reason he can tell his messenger to go and get him quickly, right? Remember, this is not the age of text. The messenger can't be like, hey, king wants to see you, Micaiah, show up, or hey, drop me a pin and I'll send an Uber chariot, right? How do you find a guy in 850 BC? You have to know where he is. Micaiah's in prison. That's why Ahab can send someone to get him. He, he says, oh, I got a guy, he's on hand, because I put him in prison. The messenger goes and says, hey, 400 guys are all saying the same thing. If you say the same thing as well, maybe your situation gets a little better. That's what he's saying when he says, please speak favorably. Right? You tell the king what he wants to hear, things get a little better for you. Micaiah, however, has a very different view than Zedekiah. Verse 14 but Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. That verse hung with me over the last couple weeks. It's short, it's simple, and it carries with it a burden of responsibility that every person who claims to speak for God ought to understand. What the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. I guarantee you that every one of us that gets up here to teach at this church understands and takes that very seriously. It is a burden. It's a good one, but it's a burden. Not to speak what we think, what we feel, what our opinions are, what our politics are. Not something that might get us some kind of, of renown or reputation. That which the Lord speaks, that shall I speak. Micaiah gets it, and he's not dumb. He knows that if saying what Ahab wants to hear will improve his situation, if I say what he doesn't want to hear, it's only going to get worse. He knows that, but it's okay, because that's his role. Jehoshaphat displayed a humble desire to seek the will of God. Micaiah displays a humble desire to speak the will of God. So what's the application for us? What do you and I seek? Are we seeking like Ahab, whatever it is that we want? With an understanding that God's real. I mean, Ahab knew that. He'd seen what happened on Mount Carmel. He knew God existed. He just didn't think that either A, God doesn't care about me so much, or he's not omnipresent, so he doesn't really know what I'm doing, or he's not omnipotent, he doesn't have enough power to really get involved in what I'm doing, right? Whatever it was, he knew he was real, but thought he could still pursue his own desires with no consequences. Is that what you and I 
are like? Focused on our will or God's? Jehoshaphat could tell the difference in the true prophets and the false prophets. Why? Because he knew this. Do we spend enough time in here to be able to tell the difference in our own will or someone else's will and God's? This is how we figure that out. What do we seek? And what do we speak? When we're talking to other people, be it at work, on the basketball court, in the grocery store, at home with our kids, what is it that's coming out of our mouths? Sometimes even as Christians, we can take the form of God's Word and sound Christian. We can use weird words like redemption and propitiation, but sometimes we can still manipulate those for our own ends. We want to seem Christian in the right circles. We want to, to have the right reputation. Zedekiah knew all the form and had none of the substance. What is it that we're speaking? Are we committed like Micaiah to speak only what God says regardless of the outcome to us, regardless of if it makes us feel uncomfortable or even gets us fired? Is that what we speak? Second, we see the revelation of the will of God. So now we have the attitudes. We understand where these guys are coming from. And now God is going to give us His will in this situation. And we're going to see how they respond. So we have this scene, right? Jehoshaphat and Ahab are on their thrones. The prophets are gathered around. There's generals. It's a big public gathering, right? It's a combination royal court and war council. That's the setting. Micaiah comes on the scene with a lot of pressure to say the right thing. Verse 15, when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Wait, what? He gave the same answer as the false prophets? Keep going. Then the king said to him, how many times must my, I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd." And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? So Micaiah comes on the scene. Again, Ahab asks what seems a fair question. Do I go? Do I not? And Micaiah says, Oh yeah, sure, go. God will give it into your hand. You're like, well, That's not what I expected. Expected him to have the opposite message of the false prophets. But Micaiah is giving lip service to the fact that Ahab only wants one answer. He doesn't really care. It's a sarcastic response, but not in a disrespectful tone. Micaiah is saying, look, I know what you want to hear, and that's all you want to hear, and you're not going to listen to anything else. So, hey, here you go. Here's your yes-man answer. Now, we know it's that way because Ahab doesn't just accept it, right? If Ahab was, was good enough, he would have said, great, Micaiah agrees. We're out of here, right? Don't let him say anything else. Quick. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's in a public gathering. Everybody there could hear the tone in Micaiah's voice and knew that he was not speaking his true belief. So Ahab is backed into saying, no, look, seriously, tell me what you think. Because he's in public. So he says, look, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth? So in all those previous encounters that we know they had, because Ahab said he always speaks bad of me, clearly this is sort of their M.O., Right? Micaiah shows up, gives Ahab the answer he wants. Then he eventually gives the truth. Ahab doesn't like it, puts him in prison. Right? They've done this dance before. 
So in verse 17, Micaiah says, okay, you want the truth? Here it is. You're going to go to war. You're going to lose. Your army's going to be scattered, and you're going to die. It was a very clear illusion. When, when he says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd, shepherd was a very direct allusion to the king. And everyone at that royal assembly understood that. That was how it had always been. In Numbers 27, 16, Moses is praying to God. And he says, may you appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. 2 Samuel 5, 2 Speaking of David, they said, You were the one who led Israel out and in, and the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. Everybody knows that, that when Micaiah says, Look, the people are going to retreat without their shepherd, it means Ahab's dead. Well, he's not very happy. right? It's a very clear prophecy, so how does he respond? Right? He's got two responses. He can say, Whoa, well, let me rethink this. That sounds bad. Or, he can choose what he does, and in verse 18, he turns to Jehoshaphat and says, See, I told you he was biased. That's not the truth. I got 400 people saying it's going to be great victory, and I got this one biased guy speaking doom and gloom. Ahab chooses to disregard God's will because he wants what he wants. So that's the facts of what will happen. Israel's going to lose. Army's going to retreat. Ahab's going to die. But God goes a step further in this case. And this is a fascinating account, and I wish we had more time than we do to get into it. But then something else happens that we don't always get when God speaks through a prophet and says, here's my will, right? We get the, the facts. We don't always get what we get here, which is the why and the how. Because Ahab chooses to ignore God's will spoken through Micaiah, and, and say, discount it because it's just a biased opinion, God says through Micaiah, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit more. Let me explain to you exactly what's going on here. And it's an awesome account. 19, Micaiah says, therefore, right, because you've chosen to disregard this, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Fascinating look into what's going on. An odd one, though, isn't it? Right, first we have to understand the setting, right? So understand down in the threshing floor at the gates of Samaria, there's this royal court scene, two kings on their throne, everybody arrayed around them, and God chooses to give this very similar picture, right? It's a parallel account. Micaiah says, I saw the Lord on his throne, and heavenly hosts were arrayed around him. And here's what's going on. So we have a heavenly royal court and a heavenly war council going on. So what's God's point? The first thing we understand is the point of the council is God is saying, you think you've got power and control, Ahab. That belongs to me. You're having your nice little royal court and war council thinking you're determining how things go. That happens in my throne room. You don't have 
the ultimate authority here. My will is authoritative. My will is supreme. So he gives us this parallel court picture. God surrounded by the heavenly hosts as opposed to human hosts determining what will happen. But it is an odd little gathering, isn't it? Because we see some things that sort of trouble us. I mean, let's be honest. You read through this and you're like, wait a minute. God asks someone to go and lie to Ahab? That, that's a little odd. Um, and he seems, there seems to be confusion or disunity in heaven, right? Because it says one said this, the other said that. Like that, that seems a little weird. And then one of the spirits, right, one of the heavenly hosts comes and says, I have a plan. And God says, what is it? Right? Wait, he's asking the angel for a plan? That's, that's odd. Right? These are weird things. And then God gives permission for, for this spirit or this angel to go and lie to the prophets. It all feels a little bit off, right? It's important for us to understand what's going on here. Now that word entice, when in verse 20 it says, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab? That is exactly what it sounds like. The word means to seduce or deceive, and specifically to seduce or deceive a gullible person. That's how it's used several places in the Old Testament. Don't have time to go there, but Deuteronomy 11.16, if you want to jot them down, Job 5.2. And so God is, is asking who's going to deceive gullible Ahab. That, that seems a little awkward to us. But we have to understand what is going on in this royal throne room. It says, God was on his throne and all the host of heaven was standing by him on his right and on his left. Now that's not just a, a fancy way of saying there was a lot of them. There are specifically two groups gathered together in this royal throne room. Right, we see the same thing in Matthew 25, 31, when Jesus is telling the parable of the sheep and the goats. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Similar picture. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And you guys know the parable. The sheep were the ones that belonged to God. The goats were the ones that did not. That's what's happening in this royal throne room. There are the holy angels on one side, and there is Satan and the demons on the other. We see a similar courtroom like that in, in Job chapter 1, where it says that all the, the heavenly hosts came and presented themselves to God, and Satan came with them. Right? Heavenly host doesn't just mean the holy angels. There's two camps here. So that makes it a little more understanding when God asks who's going to deceive Ahab. No, he doesn't say this is my plan. He says there's already a plan afoot, and he asks two questions, who's going to do it and how. He doesn't direct this plan. This is coming from the unholy angel camp. God knows about it, and so he says, okay, why don't you tell me what your plan is? Now the disunity makes sense as well. Right? There's no disunity in heaven between God and the holy angels. We know that. Ephesians 4, 4 and 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. No disunity in heaven. But in the other camp, who's their commander-in-chief? The father of lies. Think there's disunity there? Yeah. Right. So God says, look, you guys have a plan. What is it? They can't even agree on it. Finally, one of them says, all right, look, here's the plan. I'm going to go and lie to all of Ahab's prophets. And God says, okay, go and do that, and by the way, you'll succeed. Right? Again, this only makes sense if he's speaking 
to Satan and his demons because when he speaks to a holy angel, he doesn't have to promise success. They know it. He doesn't have to give them permission, right? If he's speaking to them, that is permission. But this is a demon coming and saying, here's our plan, and he needs two things from God. He needs to know it's allowed because God has to give them permission. We learn that in Job and everywhere else through the Scriptures. And he doesn't know he's going to succeed because he doesn't trust God. But God says, you're going to succeed. I'm going to allow this to happen because it's in my will. Right? Same thing that we saw Jesus do in Mark chapter 5 when he casts legion, the many demons, out of the, the demon-possessed man. Right? He casts them out and then they, they beg him for permission. Mark 5, 11, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged Jesus saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. That's what's going on in this royal throne scene. God says, you guys have a plan, and in this case, it is in accordance with my will. Go ahead. So we get the why and the how. Now in verse 23, Micaiah says, Therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Right? He says, look, this wasn't God's plan, but it's his will. And because it's his will, it's coming from him. It's his judgment, even though it's being carried out by the opposing camp. That's what happens. An amazing revelation that God gives of this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This is how it's going to be carried out, Ahab. What's the, the application for us seeing this kind of a scene? Well, it, it's not a big leap. You can see it already. God decreed judgment for Ahab, but he gave him an opportunity to, to repent by telling him, you're being lied to. I promise you what Micaiah just spoke about your doom is going to happen if you follow through because you've been lied to by the father of lies. Ahab can repent if he so chooses because he hasn't gone yet. We learn that that's the same for us, right? God has already pronounced his will for every one of us based on how we view him. We've gotten the same thing Ahab did. We have God's will and his pronouncement of judgment in advance. We have the same choice as Ahab did. God is gracious. Just because he's pronouncing judgment doesn't mean he's mean-spirited. He tells us what's coming before it comes so that we can change our mind. That's what repentance is. He's a gracious God and gives us an opportunity to repent by giving us the judgment ahead of time. And secondly, God's supremacy is unparalleled. There is nothing that you or I or even Satan and his demons can do to thwart the will of God. We can't outthink, outplan, outrun, or outsmart what God has decreed. Not even Satan can do that. He has plans and they fail unless they happen to, for a time, coincide with God's plan like allowing Satan to maneuver people into putting Christ on the cross. That was Satan's plan. He thought he was winning. God's supremacy is unparalleled. So, we've seen the revelation of God's will. We need to understand that, right? Some of the people in the story did, some didn't. We're going to see their outcomes. But as we look at their outcomes, we need to understand what what Micaiah and Jehoshaphat did. Proverbs 16.9, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Ahab, you've got your plans and your little 
War Council, that's all nice, but that's not where things get done. So the third part is the results based on the revealed will of God. We continue in 24. So what, what does the king do after this, right? How do all four of these men respond? The first thing we're going to see are the results for the two prophets. Verse 24, Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. Short account, right? First thing we see is that Zedekiah has a pretty fervent rebuttal, right? Micaiah gets up and speaks this sort of very interesting and, and negative for Ahab account of God's will. So Zedekiah says, oh, I'm, again, I'm going to out-prophet the rest of the false prophets. He walks up and bam! Now, that was an insult. Not only was it an injury, but it was an insult and intended as such. And he says, look, the Spirit was speaking through me. So clearly he didn't then go to you and say something different. He's claiming to be speaking with the authoritative will of God. And he's worked up. He's emotional. He's putting on a show for Ahab. How does Micaiah respond to this? He says, oh, you're going to figure it out when you're hiding for your life. Right? That's what that means. When you're hiding in an inner room, we saw Ben-Hadad do that when he was defeated by Israel. Back in 1 Kings chapter 20, it says he went and hid in an inner room, right? He's hiding for his life. That's what Zedekiah is going to be doing. Why? Deuteronomy 18, 19. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die. Prophesying in the name of God falsely carried with it the death sentence. And Micaiah says, oh, don't worry, Zedekiah. You're putting on a nice show right now. But there's a time coming when you're going to be hiding and understand that your life is forfeit. It's coming. What about Micaiah? Micaiah has a pretty obedient response. He, he sort of accepts what happens. Right? He says, Behold, you'll, you'll see on that day, in verse 26, the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and says, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he says, Listen, all you people. Micaiah is going back to prison. Right? Ahab says, Return him to the officials that had him there in the first place, only this time reduce his rations to that which will barely sustain life. And they knew exactly what that was. And again, this was not unsurprising or not surprising for Micaiah. He understands who Ahab is. He's already been put in prison. He knows if he gives Ahab negative news again, it's going to get worse. And that's exactly what happens. And yet, what does he do? Does he, does he get fired up about it? Does he try to defend himself? No, he simply says, okay, Zedekiah, you're going to see what the truth is. And Ahab, you're going to see as well. If you actually come back from this, then great. You can say that I wasn't speaking to the Lord, but that's not what's going to happen. There's obedient acceptance despite the circumstances that he knows he's walking into. He's going to spend some amount of time in a prison with just enough bread and water to keep him alive. He's going to be in constant pain and weakness. And he says, yeah, okay, I'll go back. Why? Because he understood Romans 8.18 before it was even written. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Micaiah knew that before Paul penned it. Yeah, I'm going back to prison, (laughs) and it's going to be bad. But that's temporary. He got that. Zedekiah's response was flashy and emotional. Micaiah's is, hey, wait and see, because that's what God said. Deuteronomy 18, we just read verse 19, the next two verses say this, the people may say in their heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In other words, if a false prophet gets the death sentence, how do we know who's the true prophet and who's the false prophet? God makes it very simple for them. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. He says, look, it's, it's an easy test. If it comes true, the guy spoke in my name. If it doesn't, he didn't. Simple. Micaiah gets that, so he says, hey guys, just wait and see. You'll know. There's the prophets. What about the results for the kings? Verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into the battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely it's the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So first we kind of see what happens to Jehoshaphat, and we've got to ask, well, why did he go? Right after hearing Micaiah's prophecy, why did he agree to go to the battle anyway? Right? And it's interesting, there's a split in commentators. Some say that he was swayed by the 400 prophets, verse the 1, or that he was swayed by his family ties to, to Ahab, which we'll learn about later. Jehoshaphat's son Jehoram had married Ahab's daughter Athaliah. I, I don't agree with that assessment. I fall on the other side of the camp with the commentators that would say Jehoshaphat was a little wiser than that. Right? We went, read 2 Chronicles 17.3 that said he was a king like David. A man called, a man after God's own heart. Jehoshaphat is instituting reforms in Judah to teach the people. I don't think he's that gullible. So why does he go? Well, first of all, he'd made an oath to Ahab, didn't he? And note the order that came in. He made the oath to Ahab saying, yes, I'll go with you. And then he said, but we should seek the will of the Lord. Probably should have been the other way around. Now, in his defense, in his mind, he's thinking, well, if God says don't go, we're not going to go, right? That's the way he thinks. But now he's in this situation where God says, look, you're going to lose if you go, but he's promised to go with Ahab, and Ahab says, we're going. So I think some of it is he's, he's keeping his word. It puts him in a difficult situation, but he's keeping his word. The other thing is, is that God didn't say don't go, did he? In fact, He says, this is the method I'm using to judge Ahab. Jehoshaphat is a man, we're told, that sought the will of God. He gets this. He's listening to Micaiah going, well, that's interesting. We're going to go to battle and lose, but that's God's plan. So he agrees to go. He's walking into a battle he knows he's going to lose. And he's okay with that because that's God's plan. Obedient acceptance. Then Ahab goes a step further. <laughs> Ahab's a slimy guy. Right? He, he's going to battle. He just told Micaiah, 
you know, confidently, hey, I'm coming back. I'll see you in prison. But what's he do? He says, hey, you know what? Just in case, I'm going to disguise myself as a common soldier when we go to war. But Jehoshaphat, I want you to stay in your royal robes with your chariot and your banner man and look like a king. Right? What's he doing? He's using Jehoshaphat as a decoy. And again, we have to wonder, why does Jehoshaphat go along with this? Some would say, well, you know, he was just kind of duped into it or, or didn't see the risk. No, I don't, I don't think that's true based on what the rest of Scripture tells us about this man. He gets it. It doesn't take a tactical genius to understand that if I'm the only kingly-looking guy on the battlefield, I'm the target. He gets it. Why does he go then? Because that's the God-given role of the king. He understood that. The king's place is on the battlefield with his men. That's why they had to seek God's will before they went to battle, because if you're going to put the people you're responsible for in danger, you better be willing to step off with them. It's the first rule of leadership I learned in the military from a gunnery sergeant. Never ask someone that works for you to do something you're not willing to do yourself. Jehoshaphat gets this. He looks at Ahab and says, oh, oh you're going that route? You're going to hide? You're going to use your men as a shield? I'm not doing that. If it means I'm the only target on the battlefield, the only guy that looks like a king, so be it. Because that's my God-given role. I'm going to go do what God expects of me, even if it puts me in personal risk. Obedient acceptance to fight despite difficult circumstances. So he goes to a battle he knows he's going to lose, and he walks into a war knowing he's going to be the prime target. So what happens? Well, as expected, the king of Aram is no dummy. He goes for the king, thinking it's Ahab. He sends his elite guard of 32 commanders with their chariots to plow through all the footmen and try to reach the king. They reach him, and Jehoshaphat cries out. Now, the writer of the Kings doesn't give us any more than that. The writer of Chronicles gives us a, a little extra piece. 2 Chronicles 17.3 says, oh, sorry, that's, we already read that one. Um, so when the captain of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is the king of Israel, and they turned aside to fight against him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him, and God diverted them from him. So this cry of Jehoshaphat wasn't just fear, although it may have incorporated that. It was a cry to God for help, as any wise man does. And what does God do? He delivers them. God diverts them away. God gives them the awareness that that's not our target. He saves Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat was willing to seek God's will despite his own difficult circumstances. There's Jehoshaphat's outcome, similar to Micaiah, obedient acceptance. What about Ahab's? Well, Ahab goes into the battle, not riding in his kingly chariot, riding in a common foot soldier's chariot, dressed like a common soldier, no banner man. These are the actions of a coward, trying to to minimize the, the chances that, well, just on the off chance that Yahweh is paying attention amidst all the other gods, if he does care about this battle and, and what Micaiah said speaks for him, just in case I'm going to hide myself. Now, he knows enough of Yahweh to be at least concerned that he might show up. He takes the coward's way out 
So what happens to him? 34. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Aramaeans and died at evening. And the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. There's the retreat. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did in the ivory house which he built and all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son became king in his place. What happens to Ahab after all his planning and posturing? He gets hit with what appears to be a random arrow. Right? In the Hebrew, that word is emphatic. It means not only was this guy not aiming at Ahab, he wasn't aiming at anything. He drew the bow and went, the enemy's that way. Poof! Right? And not only does it hit Ahab, it hits him in the one place where an arrow could do maximum damage. I tried to find a good picture of, of ancient Israeli armor, but most of them were too late. They were Roman, but they, they would have a, a metal breastplate that covered the front, a solid piece of metal. The arrow is not going to penetrate that. And then it, in the Hebrew, what it, what it says is the arrow hit between the breastplate and the scale armor. On the side, they had overlapping small pieces of metal, like, like an early version of chain mail, only bigger, that would allow them to move. And those two pieces of the armor, the breastplate and the scale armor, were tied together with leather straps right down the seam under your arm. That's a difficult place to hit with an arrow that hasn't been aimed, except if it's aimed by Yahweh. Ahab had to have his arm in the right position. The arrow had to hit in the right place to get through the seam between the two pieces of armor into his chest cavity to deliver a fatal wound because God decreed it, because Ahab wouldn't listen to God's will. He wouldn't repent. It's interesting that God chose that method. He could have chosen the king of Aram, right? I mean, divert the 32 captains and have them take out Ahab. No, he chooses a random arrow like he does so often through the scripture to let people know it's not your actions that did this, it's mine. So Ahab spends a very uncomfortable afternoon watching his army fall apart and begin to retreat, knowing that it's a fatal wound, knowing he's going to die, and I have to wonder what he was thinking. He could have been thinking Micaiah was right. Maybe Yahweh is the one true God. Or he could have hardened his heart like we see so many times in the scriptures and be railing against Yahweh. Probably the latter, based on his track record in the last six chapters. So Ahab sits there knowing he's dying, knowing he was wrong. He dies, they take him to the pool in Samaria, wash his chariot out, and the dogs lick up his blood just like was prophesied in chapter 20. So where does that leave us? Well, there's two groups in this account. There's Ahab and Zedekiah. They don't care about God's will, either think he's unconcerned, uninformed, not powerful enough. And they're willing to take that risk to get what they want. All that matters is that I get 
what I want, regardless of what God thinks about it. There may be some in the room today that have that view of God. Maybe you even accept God's reality like Ahab did. He knew Yahweh existed, but had a very small view of him. If that's you, if you believe there is a God, but it's not really important that I submit myself to him, allow him to be my sovereign, to control and direct my life, I can kind of do my own thing, then your judgment is the same as Ahab and Zedekiah's. But God has given you that ahead of time. Take advantage of his grace in saying, look, if you progress down the path you're on, here is the result. Take that to heart. That's one action, or one outcome. The other group is Jehoshaphat and Micaiah. Those men understood that their wants and desires needed to be subjected to the will of God. And it was okay because he's a good God. They were comfortable doing that despite personal cost of a magnitude that you and I have probably never experienced. Most of us have never been to prison just hanging on to a threat of life. Most of us have never been to war with your own life hanging in the balance. Some have experienced that one. But they were willing to do those things because they saw that it was God's plan and therefore was in everyone's best interest, including their own. I like to think about Micaiah, right? He, he went back to prison. His situation got worse. And he was okay with that because where is Micaiah now? As you and I speak this morning, he's in the presence of the one true king. And I guarantee you, his short transitory time in Ahab's prison doesn't even cross his mind. Because he's face to face with his Savior. That was enough for him. The weight of the coming glory. Jehoshaphat understood the same. You know, he didn't have any guarantee he was going to survive that battle. God said nothing about Jehoshaphat's fate. He knew they were going to lose, and he knew he was going to be a target. He had every reason to believe that, like Ahab, he might not walk away from that battle. And he went anyway. He was willing to accept that risk because it was God's will. Are we? For those of us that follow Christ, are we willing to accept the fact that sometimes God's not going to deliver us, like Micaiah? He's going to let us walk through difficult things. Other times, like Jehoshaphat, he may choose to deliver us from those things. Some of the road is going to be hard, but the end result is worth it. If we understand God's will, are we willing to put our wants beneath a good and powerful God's will? That's what we have to consider this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so generous to give us all of your words so that we can understand what your will is. We know what's coming. It's not a mystery. God, I pray that if there are those in the room today who, who are here because they believe you exist but are not willing to subject their own wants and desires to your will, that, that you would give them a new heart of flesh as opposed to a heart of stone. 
that you would open their eyes and their ears that they might repent and believe. That you have their best interest at heart and that the only way they end up with you is to accept your work on their behalf through your son, Jesus. And Father, for those of us that, that do seek you, we want your will. We want to follow in the footsteps that, that Christ laid out for us. I pray that you would give us the courage to walk through difficult circumstances, understanding that you may or may not deliver us from them, but, but that either way, your will is what's best for our ultimate good and your glory. Give us that courage that Micaiah and Jehoshaphat displayed. May we seek your will and may we have the courage to speak your will despite the uncomfortable circumstances that may bring. I thank you that you have not left us on our own to do that, but you've given us your spirit. You've given us your word and those things combined give us wisdom and understanding that we might develop into the kind of men and women that would have that courage. May that be the hallmark of this class and this church, wherever it is we walk, in our jobs, our neighborhoods, our activities with our kids. May we seek and speak your will with confidence that you have designed your will for our good. We pray that you would be with us now as we move into the rest of the day, that, that you would use these things to, to change our hearts and our minds and our resulting behaviors. We ask these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen.